Well, obviously, it's, it's Mission Sunday, and this is always uh, one of my favorite Sundays. Not only is the church very colorful with all these flags of the nations, and the kids come down and bring the flags of the nations that represent our, where our missionaries are, and we get to sing missions songs and, and pray missions prayers. But on top of that, I think Jay mentioned earlier, there's a little bit of uh, missions cuisine downstairs, some goodies uh, that we get to have. And I know this year uh, they found this cookie from Australia called a Tim Tam in Australia. It became one of my favorite things while I was there. And I guess now uh, Trader Joe's has a version of it. It says Aussie-style cookies. So we'll see if they got it, got it right. But uh, join us for some of that with, with coffee. Now, if you're new with us, uh, what you need uh, to know is that this little celebration that we do isn't just a token nod towards, uh, towards missions, kind of the one day a year that we, you know, acknowledge missions. It's one of many things we do to keep before us what we're all about, to remind us that the mission of the church. From the very start of this church, this church has always tried to make missions, the sending of missionaries, kind of part of our, our DNA. You will notice it says reach, build, and send on the front of our bulletin. That's, that's the trajectory of our church, to reach people with the gospel, to build people up in the gospel, and to send them out with the gospel. Missions is what we're all about. We, we try to increase our budget in it all the time, that we can send more missionaries. And my hope as a pastor is that if people are out there kind of talking about our church, there would be, that would be the emphasis. The people would say, that's, that's a missions church. And, and why is this? Is this just because we want to make, you know, missions our thing? Every church has, has a thing, you know. Some churches are seeker-friendly churches. Some churches are all about, you know, social work and justice. And some churches are about a form of, of liturgy. And, and we have decided that our thing is, about, is, is missions. It's our niche. It's the way we're going to be different. Is that why we're a missions church? No. Well, No. Mike got it right. It's good, Mike. Good. <laughs> the answer is simply, we're a missions church because we're Christians. Missions has been what Christians have been about from the very beginning. All you have to do is read the book of, of Acts. It's the story of the church from the beginning, demonstrating kind of the, the DNA of the church, the, the very mission and purpose of the church. It starts where Luke's gospel has left off, where Jesus has risen and, and, and gives the great commission. And then it brings us to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he gives this great uh, command and promise. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They're to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's his command. And he gives a promise of his spirit to empower them to do it. And if you know the book, the spirit comes, and, and, the, and the Christians are filled with the spirit, and they begin to proclaim the gospel. They go out with the gospel, and people are saved. These new believers gather they learn, they go out with the gospel and people are saved and the new believers gather. They learn and grow, they go out with the gospels all the way, all the way down to us. See, the reason we are a missions church is because we are Christians. 
That's what Christians do. It always has been. Missions is not a niche or our niche. It's the niche for all Christians, for all churches. David Cook says this about Acts 1.8. The extent to which a church commits itself to the missionary task is the extent to which it could be said to be Christian. Missions is our mandate. It's our life. It's what every Christian church must be about. And this begs the question, okay, practically then, what does that look like? What does that mean? We're supposed to go out with the gospel. We're supposed to do missions. How does that practically work? Well, that brings us to Acts chapter 13 this morning. And you may wonder, why Acts 13? Why not just start at at the beginning? Well, if you know the book of Acts, from from 1-8 forward, it's kind of this Holy Spirit-inspired explosion, right? Uh, The Spirit comes at Pentecost, and Peter uh, and the apostles burst forth in proclamation, and 3,000 are saved, and miracles are happening, and people are gathering, and they're learning the word, and then they begin to be persecuted, and they scatter, and they run, and they're sharing the gospel along the way, and these little communities of believers are popping up. So that although it's all sovereignly planned in a sense it seems very spontaneous and reactive and even random it's kind of hard to model yourself after what they're doing we don't see specifically how one church is doing this missions thing until we get to acts chapter 13 here here luke kind of zooms in he kind of slows down from this big overview of this explosion of the gospel going out and slows down and he zooms into this church at antioch And we get to see specifically how they do missions. We get to see a model of a missional church. It's it's from this church, which, by the way, is is the first uh, mixed Jew-Gentile church. We get to see uh, the gospel uh, modeled as it goes out. It actually crosses, they, they take it across the sea to the world, ushering in kind of the age of missions. And it's the model for every church, from Ephesus to Corinth to Macedonia to Thessalonica, all the way down to us on how to do it. So for the next few minutes, we're going to look at three missions basics that we see modeled by this church. There are things that I hope we do here, we maybe don't even think about, but this, I think, will root us and exhort us to keep at it. And the first thing we should notice is that a missions church, a Christian church, Number one, selects and specifically sends people for the task. It selects and specifically sends people for the task of missions. I know this sounds obvious, but you know what? With all the emphasis in the church today being on, on kind of on growth, on, on pulling people in, on being seeker-friendly and, and attractional, right? We can lose the sending-friendly thing. We can forget as we're trying to grow, gather and grow, that we're supposed to go. That we don't just want to bring people in, we want to send them away with the gospel. And look at how it's done here. Look at the process of selecting and sending in Antioch. So chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now there, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were 
worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here we have this amazingly cosmopolitan kind of heterogeneous church. It's got Barnabas, a native of Cyprus, Simeon, who is clearly a black man. His, his other name is Niger, which means black. Lucius, probably also a black man because it says that he's from Cyrene, which is North Africa. Uh, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod. The Greek infers that he probably, was probably raised in Herod's household. And finally, Rabbi Saul. These are the prophets and, and teachers of this church. The Antioch staff uh, is racially or ethnically integrated and dynamically gifted, a bunch of go-getters. This is a church. I think of kind of Tim Keller's church in, down in New York City with all its diversity and all that talent. This is a church where the action is. Right? Exciting and diverse and talented. You can imagine the, the preaching and teaching and the wisdom in that church. You've got Rabbi Saul, you got Barnabas. But here's the thing they don't just sit back and enjoy and try to maintain this wonderful fellowship with all this giftedness that they have. They don't say, hey, this is great. Let's just have our time of worship in our community and fill our spiritual bellies. And enjoy. They're not like Peter on the mountain transformation, right? Where he's like, hey, let's make some houses. Let's all live here. No. From the get-go, their worship is missional. The text tells us that they worshiped together. That as they worshiped together, they were praying. And it's not just random prayer. It's, it's, it's fasting prayer where you give up. Right, Something so that you can focus together in prayer. It's the idea of a, a focused, deliberate prayer for, for a purpose. Here they are doing it to, to seek the Lord's guidance on something. And we see what this prayer is about and the answer they get. We don't see it in their prayer, but we understand what their prayer is by the answer they get in verse 2. Then after fasting and praying... Excuse me, verse 2. I have to grab my glasses for a second. <laughs> Being short, I can't get this far away, this far away enough for me to see it uh, properly. So, <clears throat> verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. See, they are praying about gospel mission. They are, they, they are seeking the Lord's guidance on what to do and how to do it, who they should send, who should go. And the Lord answers them, send off Saul and Barnabas. Now, the first thing I want us to notice from this is that their selection and calling process 
For, for God calling their missionary workers is more than personal, it's corporate. Yes, there's a personal call upon Saul, a personal call. It says, it says in verse 2, to the work to which I have called them. They've been called by God. We know, we, we can go back to Acts chapter 9 and see Saul, Paul's calling, right? Where God, you know, opens his eyes and instructs him to go to the Gentiles. And we can see how, you know, Barnabas has been being shaped. It is an individual call, but it's corporate as well. Their calling and their selection. They don't just say, hey, I feel called and take off as missionary lone rangers. No, God uses the church, their family, to recognize them, to set them apart, to pray over them, and to send them off. This is really important. You know, when Jay Choi came along to this church, what, 18 years ago or something like that, how long ago, a long time, uh, he, he came along, he was a young man just out of college, and I remember our, our pastor, Paul Reese, our Welsh pastor at the time, uh, was speaking to him and uh, asked him, you know, what he wanted to do with his life, and he said he was planning on going to seminary and probably, you know, doing some teaching or, or ministry, and Paul responded, he said, hey, that, that's fantastic, who's sending you? And uh, Paul gave Jay a little while to flounder. And then Paul explained that ministry workers are sent out by the church and said, why don't you stay around for a while and get involved? And we can get to know you and you can get to know us and you can see what the work of ministry is all about and learn and and grow so we can confirm your gifting and your call and you send you with our prayers and, and with our support. And Jay did stay. He stayed around for about 10 years. And he found a wife during that time. And we were able to see his gifting and his calling as he practiced ministry and learned with us. And then we were able to, to send him off with our full confidence as he headed off to seminary. Now he's back. We couldn't keep him away. He's back. But you, this is the exciting thing about our CTR missionaries. They've been part of us, part of this family They've been our, our prophets, our preachers, and our teachers so that we've been able to see their calling and gifting and confirmation and, and, and encourage them and pray for them so that we could send them out. You think of the Bogards. Think of John and Catherine who were able to visit us from Papua, Indonesia this, this summer. They were, when they were here with us, they led small groups John was part of our ministry training. Catherine helped with our Tots and Co. ministry, which is a great evangelistic ministry we had. They were, they were our friends and, and co-workers right here. The Tangways, who just left for Nepal, they were instrumental in our West Central uh, ministries, always involved in evangelism. They were involved in our lives in this church for many years. So that we knew them and prayed with them. We saw them in action. We could send them off with full confidence and support. This is how God does his kingdom missions work in this world all the way to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth. He does it through his church, prayerfully selecting and sending workers. Interestingly, look at verse 3 with me. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So who's sending them off right there? The church, the leaders in the church, the whole church family. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. This is how God, this is how the Holy Spirit, this is how he sends his people through his church. He selects them and encourages them and exhorts them and confirms them and sends them out through his church. This means a couple things for us as a church. Firstly, it means costly sacrifice. Sending is relationally costly. We don't send away strangers, people we don't care or, or know. We're called to send out our close friends, our family, maybe even our own children. I remember when the president of Columbia Bible College, it's now called Columbia International University, it's a mission school, it's where I went for my undergraduate, he was here speaking. And he said, you know what the number one thing that keeps their graduate wannabe missionaries away from the field, do you know what the number one thing is? Their parents and their family. Because they don't want them to leave. They don't want their grandkids to be raised overseas. It hurts. It's costly. Think of who Saul and Barnabas were to this church, this church here at Antioch. Barnabas, the encourager, probably the crucial spiritual disciple of, of many in that church. Paul, their boldest evangelist and top teacher. Many had probably come to faith through his ministry. That's tough. They're sending away some of their closest, their best teachers, their loved. When we sent uh, David and Stephanie Bogart, if you look on your thing, you'll see a picture of David and Stephanie. When we sent them to the field, they had been part of my youth group leadership team back when I was the youth pastor here. Uh, They had been mentoring kids, planning trips, discipling. We had served together, struggled in ministry together. Some of you here were on that same team, working with that same youth ministry. So close, such good friends. And now they're away for a long time. When the Tangways left for Nepal the first time, if you've been around, you know, they went, came back, left again. When they left the first time, I was depressed. They were vibrant in this church, ministering sacrificially in this neighborhood. I could tell you about the many ministries and friendships that they were evangelizing through. They were friends of my family. The Mallets, Jessica and Tyler, in Niger, such good friends, lived in the Riley building behind us. Some of you lived there with them. They had children here. We celebrated their children's births. Their children were interacting and friends with our children. Some of you went to school with Tyler and worked closely with him. Hard, so hard to send them away. And now recently we sent away the Tangways again. <laughs> their sons are teenagers and integral in our, in our youth group. Many of us have bonded with their family a second time. It's hard. Sending is costly. It relationally hurts. And of course, it's also costly financially. 
and our resource-wise and as, as we continue to support these families through the years. But sending out people, friends and family, is what a missions church does. It's what a Christian church does. It's who we are. It's been that way from the beginning. And if we don't, if we lose this focus, then we really just become about maintenance. We just become about maintaining our programs and maintaining our buildings. And as soon as you do that, this is a missions church, this is a maintenance church. You're in a free fall, a death spiral. No, we, we have to keep at it. We have to be raising people up, recognizing their gifting and calling, and prayerfully set, send, setting people apart and sending them out no matter how costly. It's crucial. It's basic. It's Christian. It's what we do. Now, there's a second missions basic here that we need to be reminded of. We see it as these guys actually go out. So look at verse 4 with me. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. We'll stop there. So they go out to this port city of Seleucus, and then they sail over to Cyprus, and what do they do when they arrive? What do they do, verse 5? It's there. What do they do? They preach. They proclaim the word of God. First, they go to the synagogues and teach the word. This has been a pattern, by the way, if you read the book of Acts. They go to the city, they go to the synagogue and start teaching. It's a good strategy. But then they begin to go through the whole island, he says. Most commentators agree that this is kind of the idea of a preaching tour that they go on. They work their way across the island from Salamis to Paphos, about a 90-mile trek east to west, systematically proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because they know that it's a mission's basic. A missional church doesn't just send people, it sends people to do word ministry. Because it's the way God brings in his kingdom. It's the way he changes hearts. It's the way he gathers people and grows his church. Word, gospel, proclamation. I, uh, I know that at CTR we're always going on about gospel ministry and expositional preaching and Bible study and sharing the good news. But that's not because that's, again, just our niche. It's because that's what a Christian church, a missional church does. It's been that way from the beginning. This church understood, this Antioch church, that the word of God proclaimed by his people is the means God has given to achieve his mission. This is the teaching of the whole Bible, my friends. Moses said that God's word is the food for their souls that brings life. Isaiah said, God's word does not return void. When it goes out, it will do its work. Jesus, in the parables in Mark chapter 4, about the 
says the word is, is the seed of the kingdom of God. So, so it must be sown, it must be cast out into the world, and it will take root in hearts. And although it will be quite a work, it will eventually bring a great harvest, 30, 60, 100-fold. The writer of the Hebrews says, the word of God is the sword of the spirit that cuts right to the heart of man. Paul said in Romans that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the early church believed that. And they put it into practice as they went out to the world. They went immediately and they preached the word. They brought the word. The gospel. It's amazing uh, how uh, in this short book, book, 28 chapters on the church, on mission, how many references there are to them doing this word work. Proclaiming the word, that phrase is there 18 times. Preaching the word is there 16 times. Teaching the word is there 15 times. 49 specific references to their word ministry in a 28-chapter book. And then at every key growth point for the church, it talks about the word of God doing its work, increasing and spreading. Flip back to chapter, we're going to do a little flipping for a second. Chapter 6, verse 7 with me. That's where we'll start. This is what it says. As they, uh, look what it says. And the word of God, this is after they've chosen the seven, they've done their ministry. It says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now flip right before our chapter, chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Now just go just past the end of our chapter, chapter 13, verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Now flip to chapter 19, verse 20. I love this one. This is the work in Ephesus. It says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord is increasing. It's prevailing mightily. And the book ends with this. Look at the very last verse of the book, chapter 28, verse 31. It talks about Paul, and he's living there for two years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the image it leaves, Paul teaching the word. You see, missions work is word work. We can't just be sending out random people, but we we must send out word workers. Preachers, teachers, evangelists, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers, home group leaders, people who can share one-to-one. This is the main game. It's what we should all be doing in our missional lives. And it's what our missions here at CTR must be about. Now let me just say something at this point that I think is important. This does not mean that aviation work is unimportant. I hope not because a lot of our missionaries are aviators. 
doesn't mean that medical work or agricultural work or social work is unimportant. These things are crucial because in and of themselves, they are loving Christian actions that go with our gospel words. But also, and very importantly, because they are platforms, aren't they? They are trellises that can hold the vine work of word ministry. My roommate from college, Mitch, went off to uh, northern China. He ended up being there 15 years. But after just a couple years there in this, with this isolated people, he came back to the States to learn and studied agriculture for two years. Because when he was up there, he could see that they really needed that. And then he went back and started a plum farm and employed all these people, and it became the platform for a great ministry there. I mean, I think of Jeff and Kim, right? One's a veterinarian, and Jeff, when he came back, went and got his anesthetist, although he was already a pharmacist, so that they could go back and use those as platforms. John Bogard, when he's flying his plane, is, is a word worker. He, he hands out tracks, and he teaches and preaches on the weekends when he can. Dan and Ava with the friendship house you saw in Spain. They do all kinds of stuff in that friendship house, clothing ministry, exercise ministry, but it's all platforms to do word ministry. We must be careful, you see, that trellis work, that uh, all those things, the wonderful medical and aviation work, that they don't overtake. They don't get in the way so that vine work starts shriveling, gospel work, word work. It's very easy to let this happen. Um, much missions work has actually gone this way. It starts very gospel-oriented, very word-oriented, but over time, some of the things that are so visual, uh, the airplane ministry, the medical ministry, the agricultural ministry, you can see the results. You can raise money for those, and those things grow quite often, the trellis things and the word ministry sometimes shrinks behind them. We must be careful that we don't have a, a gospel or word-shaped hole in our social and medical and agricultural work and all the things we're doing. It's only as the word and the gospel go out in these ministries that we can have any confidence that our missions work is not going out void it's through the word ministry that's how we know it won't be void we must hold up word ministry we must train people in word ministry we must practice and be all about word ministry we can't falter on this it's so easy you know those parables in mark you know the one of the the mustard seed and the one of the farmer who plants the seed and he the seed is the word and he goes out and he looks and there's just dirt then he goes out again, there's just dirt. And he goes out again, there's just dirt. It looks like nothing is happening. That's the way word work can seem. It says it's like a tiny mustard seed. It looks like nothing. We can begin to believe that. No, we need to remember that that, what that mustard seed will grow into. We need to remember there's a great harvest for that farmer. Now, there's one more missions basic that we can glean from this text, at least that I'm gleaning from this text. Not only is missions work about sending people and about word ministry, but it's all what we can't miss is in this text is that missions work is also a battle. 
It's absolute spiritual warfare. Look at what happens as these guys go out to preach the gospel on this little island, especially as somebody begins to respond. Look at what happens. Start at verse 6 again. This is what. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist of darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord." You couldn't have a better physical presentation or example of the very nature of Satan's evil spiritual work in the world, his opposition to the gospel, than this encounter. You see, Paul and Barnabas don't go out to preach on neutral turf, do they? As soon as they begin to speak the gospel into Paulus' life, there's another voice that comes along and starts speaking. Paulus shows real interest. Perhaps the things of the world have become empty for him, and he's seeking. You can see the Holy Spirit seems to be working on him, but another counselor is whispering in his ear immediately. Bar-Jesus elements, this, this, this magic man, false prophet. And what is he doing as he speaks? says he's making the good paths crooked. He is taking God's good truth, his good way. Remember, he's, he's a Jewish false prophet. He, he probably is using the Old Testament scriptures and he's twisting it to turn Paulus away from faith in Jesus. And more than that, he even takes on Jesus name. It's interesting. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, son of salvation. What a deceiver. He has, he has tried to latch on to the identity and identity of the identity of Jesus and with his power and his teaching he's trying to identify so that he can twist things and lead Paulus away from true salvation. He is villainy and deceit disguised as good religion, as a righteous way, as a true path. This is ex exactly the world our missionaries go to. It's exactly the battle that they enter. They're proclaiming the gospel and teaching the word to people who are captive people who have another counselor speaking deceit into their ear, the enemy of all unrighteousness. 
and he's twisting God's truth to lead them astray. Think about it. Bar-Jesus really shows us the essence of almost every false religion, doesn't he? They all start with, with some prophet or teacher that takes God's truth, maybe generally from nature or maybe specifically right out of Scripture, and then twists it to lead away from him. There's many Eastern religions that use the Old Testament scriptures all the way back to Abraham and twist the path into a moralistic, Christless ritual promising salvation, leading people away. Modern Judaism does basically the same thing, using the traditions of their teachers to turn the good truth of the word into empty works religion that's actually an enemy of righteousness. Mormonism uses all the scriptures, even the New Testament, even the name of Jesus, but then adds its own book, making crooked the straight path of the Lord. This is what missionaries, our missionaries, gospel proclaimers are up against, whether in Spain or Indonesia or Australia or even Spokane, really. And I love how the Lord here works through Paul to, to expose Bar-Jesus for what he really is. How he blinds him. So suddenly he's just groping around in the dark looking for people to lead him by the hand. Showing he's just a, he's just a lost soul groping in the dark. That's false religion. It's got nothing and can lead you nowhere into more dark, except into more darkness. And it took a miracle of revelation for Paulus to come to believe, didn't it? Through the teaching of the word and the work done along with it. This again is why we must be a praying church. The whole missions event from the sending of his people to the saving of the lost is ultimately God's gracious work as we proclaim his word. We must be praying. So those are the basics, the mission's basics that we learn from this little church at Antioch. Sacrificially sending out people, God's people, people we love, proclaiming the word, and engaging in a spiritual battle. None of this uh, should be a surprise, because this was the way of our Savior, wasn't it? Think about Jesus. He was the first sent one, wasn't he? Think of that Trinitarian family, the ultimate family of God place our churches modeled after you think it's a sacrifice uh, leaving us Jesus was sent and left his family what a sacrifice to us he was the first word worker when he came wasn't he the very word of God incarnate who came preaching the gospel, preaching from town to town. Despite all the wondrous miracles he could do and did do, that's not why he came. He says that at the beginning of Mark. I came to preach. And he's the one who fought the ultimate spiritual battle. 
for us. He was fighting the battle from the day he arrived and he met Satan to his victory at the cross. Selected and sent by the Trinity to do the word ministry to fight the spiritual battle for us. His mission is the model for his church and it's the power for us. We go, we send, we proclaim in and through him where we can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for showing us in your word this little church at Antioch, for showing us the way to be your, on, on mission for you, to be your missionaries as a family. Give us the courage to send our friends and family Give us the discipline to be word workers. Give us the the, the strength and empower us for the spiritual battle, we ask. In your son's name, amen.